Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our one-week series from the book of Revelation called From Creation to Creation. And today's message is entitled Revelation and the Rest of the Bible. So let's join Dr. Newfeld. Some years ago, I was sitting with a delightful Israeli guide. We were sitting on the ground on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the Kidron Valley and gazing into the old city of Jerusalem. We are looking directly at the Golden Gate on the wall of the old city, a gate that has been bricked shut so that no one can enter by that gate. The guide was explaining to me that the gate had been bricked up by the Muslims. When I asked him why, he explained to me that there were many of the Jewish rabbis who have taught that when the Messiah returns, he's going to enter into Jerusalem by that golden gate. Well, we both chuckled at the thought that a a few bricks should prevent the coming of the Messiah. And then we got serious, and I asked him why the rabbis thought that this was the gate the Messiah would enter by. And the guide told me he didn't really know. And since my guide wasn't a Christian, I then said something that I deliberately said to catch his attention. I said I knew with absolute certainty where the Messiah would come back. You know, my guide looked at me in a slightly bemused fashion. And after all, we didn't know each other very well, and he no doubt was wondering if I was just another one of those crazy people who showed up in Jerusalem filled with all manner of fanciful ideas. Well, nonetheless, he did politely ask me where I thought the Messiah would return. And I said, sir, he will come back precisely on the very ground that we're sitting at this moment. I opened my Bible to Zechariah 14, verse 4, and read it to him. It says, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very large valley. Well, suddenly my guide's expression changed from one of suspicion to interest, and we began to discuss the vision of the prophet Zechariah. I took him to Zechariah 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And as we thought about that image, I asked my guide the question that I had in mind since we began our conversation. What if, I asked, what if, when the Messiah returns, you see on him the marks of piercing, pierced hands and feet, the place in his side where the spear penetrated into his then dead body? You know, at that point, my guide, wanting to emerge from this discussion without being evangelized, simply waved his hand and said, well, then I'd believe, I guess. Now, you, my listener, I wish I could look you in the eye and ask a very important question. Would it matter if my guide would believe when Christ returned, or would that moment be too late? See, much of how we answer that question depends on how we read Revelation 20, verses 1 to 5. Let me read that very important piece of Scripture. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, for those of us who know our Bibles well, this is called the millennium. And how we see Revelation 20 has a great deal to say with how we understand the rest of our Bible. But before I go to the rest of the Bible, let me outline two different ways of treating this passage. One interpretation has been called the amillennial view. Now, that's probably the wrong title for it because amillennialists don't actually deny the millennium. I suppose a better title for their position is Realized Millennium. I'll explain that in just a moment, but for our purposes, amillennialism will have to do. Amillennialists argue that the number 1,000 is just another example of John's use of symbolic numbers in the book of Revelation, you know, and they might be right. 1,000, they say, stands for the Lord's predetermined number of days. Furthermore, Amillennialists argue that the binding of Satan refers to Satan's inability to stop the church from growing and winning people to Christ and seeing the expansion of the kingdom of God. They argue that Satan has not been bound in an absolute sense, for he now rages against the saints, throws them into prison, even executes them, but that he is bound in this sense— He is bound from preventing the worldwide expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the furtherance of his kingdom. And so for Abilenialists, Revelation 20 is just another vision presented in this book that tells us of the nature of the spiritual warfare that Christians are engaged in in this present hour. So you can see they're not denying the millennium per se, Rather, what they're saying is that the present experience of today's church is the realization that in one important aspect, that is, in the growth of the gospel, Satan is bound. That is the millennium, they say. I think that one reason that amillennialism is so popular is because it's simple. When Jesus returns, that's the end. The nations are gathered up and presented before the great white throne of judgment. And so for amillennialists, the answer to my Jewish guide would have been rather simple. When Jesus returns to earth, there are no second chances. They might even quote 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't wait for Jesus to come back because when he does, he immediately closes the door on this evil age and you will be judged. Furthermore, Amillennialists will argue that the premillennial position seems more like science fiction than reality. Are we to assume that all manner of people will remain on earth after Christ returns and that Christians receive resurrection bodies and are mingling for 1,000 years among those who have bodies that are on this earth that will die? Sounds unbelievable and even fantastic. I mean, how are we to imagine such a thing? But there are those, and myself included, who disagree. The premillennial position of which I define myself tends to view Revelation 20 quite literally. When Jesus returns, he binds Satan, throws him into a pit, and he is prevented from deceiving the nations as he is presently doing. At that time, the first resurrection occurs in which all who have hoped in Christ, those of the living and those of the dead, all Christians, are given a resurrection body. 
And then those of us in the first resurrection will witness Jesus literally taking up his throne in Jerusalem, and we, his servants, will reign with him for a thousand years before the story of this present era comes to an end. In other words, the end comes in stages, not in one complete and final moment. Christ returns, he raises his saints bodily, he then binds Satan, and then reigns on earth over the nations for a thousand years. Satan is then released to deceive the nations. Christ quickly ends that rebellion and then brings an end the history of this earth. He rains down fire on the rebellious. This earth is consumed and destroyed, and then comes the second resurrection, the resurrection of the unjust who will stand before him in judgment. He then casts them into the lake of endless burning, and then comes the new heavens and the new earth, and the consummation of all that we have ever hoped for. Now, that's quite a story, and you might have to go over that a couple of times to rehearse that. For those of you who are pan-millennialists, and, and you're tempted to say, well, I, you know, I just don't know what I think, and everything is just going to pan out in the end, so I want to say, hang on for just a moment. Are you sure that that should be our response? Now, even while I have a great respect for the amillennial position, you know, I have a number of dear and respected fellow pastors and theologians who I call my friends who, who actually hold that position. Yet I think our understanding of Revelation 20 actually impacts our understanding of the whole Bible. You see, how we read the message of the Old Testament prophets how we understand the hope that they communicate is greatly affected by this matter. And so how we read Revelation 20 impacts what we hope for in the future. So stay with me on this. I know this is going to be a bit complicated, but if we mind this to its depths, I think it's going to be well worth the while that we spend on it. Trustworthy, practical Bible teaching is something people of all ages and stages of faith need. Recently, we received these encouraging words. Thank you. The work you're doing is such a blessing. From the library of study materials on your website to the excellent video lessons with Dr. Neufeld. I've been an avid listener and viewer of Back to the Bible Canada for a few years now, and it just keeps getting better. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is striving to meet a deep spiritual need by offering practical, trustworthy Bible teaching resources on air, online, in print, and so much more. As we work toward our fiscal year-end goal of $325,000, we've been provided a very special matching gift pledge of $75,000. That means for every dollar you give, another dollar is given up to $75,000, doubling its impact. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to offer your gift today. The Old or the First Testament has a great many texts that are exceptionally difficult to understand if one does not have a view of the millennium. We'll look at a few of them. Let's start with Psalm 72, verses 8 to 14. This is a Psalm of Solomon, and if you know your Bible well, you're going to know that Solomon serves a twofold function. 
First, he's the king of Israel, and as king, this psalm serves as his prayer that God would give him wisdom to defend the people of Israel with justice. But Solomon is also aware that as king, the one who sits on David's throne, he serves as a forerunner to the Messiah. So with that in mind, let's read verses 8 to 14. May he, that is, may the Messiah, have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From the oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Now, one can only imagine this verse in its fulfillment. When the Messiah comes, says Solomon, the kings of the whole earth will bow before him and lick dust. And the needy and the poor who have no helper, in the days of the Messiah, those needy will come to the great Messiah, and if any of them are killed, that that their blood will be precious to him, and the Messiah will render perfect judgment on earth. Here's my question. When does that happen? Well, it's not happening now. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no poor and no needy, and certainly no one will be killed. For as John reminds us in Revelation 21, there will be no crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's move on to more Old Testament texts. I'm reading now from Isaiah 11, one of the, one of the great Old Testament messianic texts. I commend the entire chapter to your study, but for the purpose of time, let me quote only a few verses here. Consider verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the wicked with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. For those who say, well, isn't that a verse about the end of this earth and the beginning of heaven? Well, I direct you to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So what is this of of which the nations don't know and have to go to him to inquire? And then the rest of the chapter speaks of how Israel in this time will rally to him and how he will set his face against rebellious nations who resist his will. When does that occur? Let's go forward to Isaiah 65, 19 and 20. There we read, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it, that is in Jerusalem, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Again, we're left to ponder. We know that no one will die in heaven. Indeed, who lives out their days in heaven, as Isaiah 65 indicates? What is this referring to? It can't be referring to the consummation of all things. One more reference, although we could look at many more. I'm reading Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 19. Remember my conversation with the Jewish tour guide on the Mount of Olives. Remember that Zechariah gives us details of the coming of the Messiah. So let's read verses 16 to 19. 
Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there will be no rain. There shall be plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment on Egypt and the punishment to all nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, this clearly is something that goes on for years. So by now, the millennial picture that develops should become clear. When Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, tells us that the Messiah will ask his father, and the father will give him the heritage of the nations, then it adds, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And here we see a time yet to come when the long-awaited Messiah arrives and sits upon David's ancient throne and makes Jerusalem his capital city from which he rules all the nations. And in spite of the rebelliousness and evil that makes up the nations, the Messiah will reign them with the righteousness of God, and that rule will be as strong as iron, which will break their fierce rebellion. See, this view is reinforced in the New Testament as well. You remember that in Acts 1 verse 6, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples ask him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And rather than telling them that they had the wrong vision, he tells them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he affirms he will restore the kingdom to Israel. And then he gives them the ministry of evangelizing the nation. Now, in Romans 11:26, we are promised that all Israel will be saved. The context of that passage makes it clear that this is speaking about physical Israel, the, the physical offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that text does not indicate all Israel means all the Hebrews of all time will be saved, for clearly they are not saved. As Ezekiel reminds us, they are a rebellious house, and as Isaiah reminded us, only a remnant will be saved. But I think that God is able in the time of the millennium to draw Israel to a time of national mourning, a mourning that is long and deep and overwhelming, in which they mourn over their sin. They will look upon their returning Messiah, whom they have pierced. And Israel, even broken off and discarded Israel, will be grafted back in again, and I believe this will be in the millennium. And so I hope you see, I don't believe that if there are more Jews believing today, of which I give thanks, that this is necessarily a sign of the end times. Or I don't believe necessarily that, that God has promised that in the end times there will be a 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the tribulation. I mean, I don't think that the Bible is clear on those matters. Neither do I believe that God needs to get the church out of the way before he can deal with Israel. All we have to do is read Ephesians 2.15, that God has made one new man out of the two. Both Jew and Gentile are given equal access before God in his eternal plans. For as Romans 10 verse 12 reminds us, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
but the Bible does seem to indicate a mighty change of heart among the natural descendants of Abraham, and this I believe during the millennium, and therefore he fulfills his ancient promises to them. Again, this is not, I think, the basis of a political call for Christian Zionism, only a reminder that God will keep all his ancient promises. And so Revelation presents us with a picture in which the ancient hope of the Old Testament prophets will be fulfilled. But Revelation fills in that vision. Revelation indicates way back in chapter 5 that the Lion of Judah, the one to rule the nations, is also the lamb that was slaughtered. And so we see that the kingdom of God was brought in one step at a time. The first step was in Jesus giving his life for the sins of the world so that his elect could be brought home from people of every race and language and tongue. The second step is his second coming in which he returns and reigns in Jerusalem. The third step is when he ends this present world and throws Satan into a lake of endless burning and calls all the nations before his throne. And the last step is in the creation of a new heavens and a new earth in which all vestiges of evil are forever banished. And we, the people of the Messiah, made up of Jew and Gentile converts to Jesus, rule and reign over the works of his hands for all of eternity. I end with Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Even so, come Lord Jesus. John, Revelation always brings up a lot of conversation, some disagreement, and uh, some people might not agree exactly with what you're presenting here. But does that exclude them from being your brother or sister in Christ? Well, certainly not. And uh, I I just assume that we won't agree with all the details. Uh, um, I'm trying to present a reasoned biblical defense of this approach, and and I'm trying to make clear what it is uh, or how it is that I'm going to be treating the book of Revelation in the future. But let's agree that even though we may disagree on some of the incidentals, we do agree on this. We agree that in the great spiritual warfare, that Christ is still Lord and governs all things, and that he is returning again, and that he will judge the living and the dead, and that believers who place their hope in him are delivered from their sin by his cross and made the people of God. Let's believe what it teaches. I think we can believe in that. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. With so many interruptions in our lives, including opportunity to travel, we want to share that we are now offering registration for our 2022 Israel Experience. This is a bucket list experience like none other, an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, experience so many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, David's royal palace, worship at the garden tomb, and sail the Sea of Galilee, all under the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld. So plan on joining us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Lafagain's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests. The Holy Land is a spectacular journey of faith. 
Registration is limited, so call Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash Israel Experience.